Hi folks, I want to welcome you to our adult Sunday school time here at the Kerwinsville Christian Church and we're so glad that you are joining us today for lesson nine. We are in the midst of our survey through the Old Testament and we're in the midst of a section of lessons that we're calling the return to the land where the focus is on uh, Israel after the Babylonian captivity and we see that in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And we're winding down with our lessons in this section because we are in the book of Esther. And today, we are going to be looking at Esther chapter 3, verses 1 to 47. Now, when we get through this lesson today, we're going to actually only have two more lessons after this, and then we'll be completed with all of the historical narratives up to this point. So let's get into it today. Today we're going to talk about a fellow by the name of Haman. And so I've entitled this lesson, The Evil of Haman. So let's talk about the reality of Haman because he has an interaction with Mordecai. Do you remember Mordecai? We talked about him last week. He is the uncle or cousin of uh, Esther who basically became like her father. And remember, he told Esther not to reveal her identity as far as her family or from what people that she came from. So when you get into chapter 3, you're going to see that all of these events are going to be are taking place after the plot that Mordecai revealed that it was against Xerxes I. So let's get right into it. So after the events of the plot against Xerxes I, Haman the Agite was promoted by the king. Now, you can do a lot of assuming here. You can assume that, well, it's because of the people who were killed because they were plotting against the king that Haman is promoted, or it may not have anything to do with it, but the fact is, is after that event of those eunuchs who were upset with the king and their plot against the king by wanting to get him killed, Mordecai finding that out, telling Esther, Esther telling the king, it's investigated. Those guys are hung, which in the Persian culture at that time wasn't by a rope. They were impaled, hung high on a pole. Haman, the Agite, becomes the basically the ruler under the king. Now, you might be saying, now who is this guy? And so there's been a lot of speculation, a lot of study has been done as far as who the Agite is. So what we have found is, is that there are a couple of different views concerning who he is. There it was an archaeological discovery years ago that identified a province of Agag in Persia. So some people feel that he is from that little-known province in Persia. That is a possibility. It's also another possibility that the writer of Esther is associating him with a people group that the Jews, when they read this, would understand and recognize, and that is the Amalekites. Do you remember the Amalekites? They were the ancient enemy of Israel who attacked Israel when they were on their wilderness journey. They were also the group that Saul was told to kill, eliminate, uh, 
but you know he didn't do that. He kept one king, Agag. So you see the connection there, the Agagites, that he kept him alive until Samuel came, and then Samuel killed him. Well, it's very possible that Haman is the from the people of the ancient foe, the Amalekites. Now, and that would make sense because the Amalekites would be as well in the Persia meeting empire because it ran all the way from Egypt all the way over to India. So there is the assumption that Haman, rather than just being a Persian from a province of Agag, is actually an Amalekite. All right, now we're, this is going to make some sense as we get further along in the story. Now there is a third view that is sometimes promoted, I've even actually seen it in a movie, is that Haman is a direct descendant of King Agag, hence the Agagite, okay? So the reality is, is that's probably not possible. Why? Because when Agag was captured, everyone who was with him was killed except for him. And then ultimately he was killed uh, by Samuel. And there's no proof whatsoever that any of his descendants left because that would have been recorded as was recorded in other areas, and it's not there. It's probably more likely that he is an Amalekite, the ancient enemy of Israel. So Haman is given authority over all the princes within the Medo-Persian Empire. Remember I told you when we talked about this last week that Xerxes I is a weak ruler and he relied upon his counselors and his eunuchs for decision making and so forth and this kind of fits so he puts another guy kind of like his executive officer underneath him to be in charge of the empire because he's got better things to do uh, he's you know he's testing out his harem or whatever I, that's just the kind of where Xerxes the first is he's a weak leader well, Haman is given authority over all the princes within the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, the text goes on and tells us that all of the king's servants within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. So whenever Haman would enter into the palace, of course, he would have to go through the king's gate, the servants would pay homage to him. Now, how would they do that? Well, they would bow, literally on their faces, and towards him and give him honor. That's what it means to bow and give homage to a person. Now, why did they have to do that? This was done in accordance with the command of the king. The king told everybody to do this. Okay, so we're not just, this is not something that people are doing on their own. They've been basically told by the king that everyone is to pay Haman homage. But the problem is Mordecai refused to bow. Mordecai is refusing to bow here. Now, you've got to wonder, what's going on here? Why is this happening? Well, when Mordecai was encouraged to bow by the other servants, he still refused. So the other servants would probably were coming up to him and saying, Yo, Mord, baby. You need to, you need, I don't know what you're doing, man, but you're going to draw some problems. You need to take care of this. Just bow to the guy. We don't care for him either, but bow. That's what we're supposed to do. But he refused to do it. Now, here's the problem that happens. 
major problem. The servants then reported to Haman that Mordecai refused because he was a Jew. All right, so let's get back to the reality of who Haman might be as an Agite. It is, I mentioned to you, one of the views that he was from that ancient people of Amalekai, the Amalekites, and that the writer is identifying him with the, one of the well-known kings of the Amalekites, Agag. Now, here's what I want you to see. If it is true that Haman is from this people group who are the mortal ancient enemies of Israel, it would only make sense that Mordecai would refuse to bow to him. Just the reality here. Because you can look at this and say, man, Mordecai is being very provoking. Okay, So the, the servants are what? Reporting Mordecai that he's not doing it. He's from, he's a Jew. Now, when Mordecai saw, excuse me, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not pay homage and bow, he was filled with wrath. I mean, it angered him. It ticked him off royally, so to speak. He was upset that this guy isn't giving me the due respect that I am due, that the king commanded. So it was not enough for Haman to deal with Mordecai. So here's where you've got to think that there's something more going on here. Because it was not enough for Haman to deal with Mordecai. He wanted to deal with the Jewish people. So this is what's amazing because this is not just, oh, I'm really angry at this guy who's not giving me the respect I need at work. I'm going to deal with him. No, he's wanting to now go after a whole people group that Mordecai belongs to. Why would he do that? Well, if he was an Amalekite, and there's this ancient conflict that exists between the Jews, Israel, and the Amalekites, it would make perfect sense that Haman would be seeking to eliminate the Jews. So you see this here. That's why the assumption is, is that Haman is an Amalekite. So Haman determined to destroy all of the Jews in the empire and set a date for the genocide. Now, how do you set the date? Well, basically, they cast lots to determine what day this would all take place. Now, here's the interesting thing. He had already decided what day he was going to carry out this massacre of all the Jews throughout the Medo-Persian Empire, and he hasn't even gone and got permission yet. But that's going to be short-lived because as soon as he's done deciding when to do it, he then goes to Xerxes. So then when we come to verses 8 through 15 of chapter 3, we're going to see Haman's plot against the Jews. So Haman, even though he's got the authority, he's over all the princes, he just can't launch an extermination process against a people group that are scattered throughout the empire. He's got to have permission to do it. So he's going to go get the permission. And so that's what we see happening in verse 8 through 15. So Haman goes to Xerxes I and tells him of a people scattered among the peoples of the empire. Now remember, the Jews at this point, yes, they are back in Jerusalem, 
But for a significant portion of them, they are scattered throughout the empire. Why? Because that was the judgment, that God would scatter them throughout the known world in judgment because of their sin. So he goes to Xerxes and he says, hey, there's this people who are scattered among all the other peoples. They're everywhere. They're even here in this capital city. This people do not keep the king's laws and it is not fitting for the king to let them live. So basically, Haman is saying, look, they don't keep your laws, king. Therefore, it's not fitting that you would even allow them to be alive because, you know, they're just causing problems. They're stirring up trouble. They're going to rebel against you at the first opportunity. So let's get them, let's deal with them. They shouldn't be, even be alive. So Haman asks for a king's decree to kill this people and he will personally pay for the expenses. Basically, when you read this, he's saying, God, I need a decree. King, I need a decree to be able to do this. And of course, this decree would be written in the laws of the Medes and Persians, so it couldn't be changed. And we're going to exterminate this people and any expense to the, to the royalty, to you, O king, I will personally repay. I will give money into the treasury to make sure that this happens. This is how determined Haman is to eliminate all the Jews in the empire. That's what you're seeing here. So he's asking for a decree to do it. Well, here's what the king does. The king gave Haman his signet ring and told him to do as he pleases with this people. So basically, the king's saying, yep, okay, I'm going to give you permission. Now, why the significance of a signet ring? Well, the signet ring would be, they didn't just deal with signatures or whatever. You know, that when you sealed something, that would be with the authority of the king. So he's basically giving his signet ring, which would be giving Haman the authority of the king, and told him, do with his people what you want to do. He basically gave him a blank check, to do what he wanted to do to carry out this genocide against the Jewish people. Haman then went to the royal scribes to write a royal decree that would be published. So he went to the royal scribes. They would then put together this decree, and then it would be published. Published where? Just in Shushan, in, in the capital city? No, they would be sent out by writers throughout the farthest parts of the empire. Everyone would know what this decree is in the king's decree to eliminate this people. The letters with this decree were sent throughout the empire. For he told you that. So they were gone all throughout the empire. Why? Because this people, he's mentioned to the king, are scattered throughout among all the peoples of the empire. So the decree announced that on a certain date, all Jews, young and old, were to be killed, exterminated. The decree went a little bit further. In what sense? The decree also declared that the possessions of the Jews were to be plundered. So it isn't just that you are eliminating them, you're stealing everything that they have. You are leaving them with nothing. This is what the decree was. 
So the letters were sent as the king and Haman drank, and the city of Sushan was perplexed. So the letters are going out. The king and Haman, they're gathering together. Hey, let's have a toast or have a drink or whatever. Hey, did you get that taken care of? Yeah, what are you going to do? This is what we're doing on a certain day. Oh, it sounds good. They're having a drink. In the meantime, the rest of the city is like, why is this happening? This is perplexing. Why why has the king, through Haman, decided to eliminate a whole group of people? And so they are perplexed. And that's what we see happening here. Well, that brings us now to chapter 4. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 17 because the reality now is is that as we get into chapter 4, we're going to see that there is this interaction between Mordecai and Esther. So let's get right into it. So when we're looking here, when Mordecai learned of the decree, he tore his clothes and sat in sackcloth and ashes. Now again, this is a sign of grief. We've seen this throughout in the history of Israel, that what they would do is they would rip their clothes, they would take off their clothes and put on sackcloth and have ashes on their head and be in mourning and prayer before God. And this is what Mordecai is doing. He is mourning this decree because this decree is a death sentence against the Jews. So he went throughout the city crying out in mourning, but he was not allowed in the palace. So what does he do? He's, he's in sackcloth and ashes. He's mourning. He's weeping. He's crying out because of this decree that has basically sentenced himself and his people to death. And he's going throughout the city expressing his grief, but he's not allowed beyond the... I mean, he can approach the king's gate, but he's not allowed there or anywhere in the palace because no one in sackcloth was allowed in the palace. They didn't allow mourners in the palace. That's one of their laws that they had in the Persian Empire. So he's outside of the palace mourning. Now, the text will then as well go on and tell you that the Jews throughout the empire lifted up their voices in mourning as they fasted and wept. And the, signif- this, the, the reality of the fasting is, is, of course, what are they doing? They're praying. They're crying out to God because they have no recourse. On this day is their death sentence. Now, The text then goes on and tells us that Esther was informed about Mordecai and she sent garments to replace his sackcloth. So she's not not even aware of what's going on. But all she knows is, is that Mordecai, somebody's come and told her that Mordecai, because she has an interest in him, is out there in sackcloth sackcloth, mourning and weeping. and, And so Esther... What does she do? She sends some garments for him to be proper again to replace the sackcloth. Well, Mordecai refuses, and Esther sent a eunuch to learn what was happening. So he refuses the clothes. Of course, whoever brought the clothes to him comes back, gives that report. So Esther's like, what's going on? So she sends a eunuch who is in charge and whom she trusts 
to f go and talk to Mordecai and find out what exactly is happening. Why is Mordecai acting this way? Why is he mourning? What's going on? So Mordecai informed the eunuch concerning all that happened and gave him the decree. So the eunuch shows up. Hey, Queen Esther wants to know why are you mourning? So what does he do? He's like, here, here's what's going on. Here's the decree. Haman has decreed that the Jewish people be wiped out on a certain day, and I am here in mourning. But that's not all Mordecai does. Mordecai wanted Esther to go to the king and plead for her people. So he's not just informing the eunuch and therefore informing Esther of what's going on. He's also wanting Esther to do something. He wants Esther in her position as the queen to now go to the king and plead for the Jews. Plead for her people. Well, okay, so Esther hears that. So what does she do? Well, Esther sent back word that no one can appear before the king without an invitation. Now, the way they had it set up, nobody can just show up and say, Yo, king, I'm here. I want to talk to you. Nobody had access to the king unless they were invited. Bottom line, that was the rules. That was the law. Those who appeared uninvited are put to death unless the king holds out the golden scepter. So let's say somebody decides, it's so important, I've got to go talk to the king. So I'm busting in there, okay, king, I've got news to tell you. Well, if you're not invited, the reality is, is they would grab you and you would be executed. You would be killed. Now, if the king had compassion, he could put a hold on the execution by what? Holding out his golden scepter holding out his golden scepter and therefore saying, okay, I pardoned this one. I'll hear what this one has to say. So she's telling Mordecai this is what the process is. She also relays to Mordecai that she has not been called by the king in the last 30 days. So she's also saying, look, and just so you understand, I can't just go barge in there, but the reality is, is I haven't seen the king for 30 days. He hasn't called for me. Well, and listen, remember, so we're not talking about like a normal marriage relationship here. She's part of a harem. He's obviously seeing other women in the harem. He's just not seeing the queen. And she says, it's been 30 days since I've seen him. So Mordecai, you know, he, he's got, a point he's going to make, and so he relays. Now, think about this. This is all going on with a eunuch. One person says something, the eunuch goes, tells the other person. That person replies, the eunuch goes back and tells her. Because the reality is Mordecai could not see Esther face to face. Because why? She's a part of the harem. And there are certain laws and rules. You just can't go into the harem as a guy. If you did, you would die. So Mordecai tells Esther not to think that she will escape the Jews' fate in the palace. First bottom line is, is he's thinking, okay, I just want you to be aware. Don't think that you of all the Jews are going to escape because you happen to be the queen. 
and you are in the palace, so therefore this isn't going to touch you. So Mordecai tells her, don't think that that's not true. It's going to affect you as well. You ultimately are going to die as well. He then points out and says that if she remains silent, then deliverance will rise from another place and she will still perish. So if you remain silent, if you don't do something, deliverance is going to come for the Jews, but it's going to come from somewhere else, and in the meantime, you're the one who's going to die. That's what he's saying. He's making a point here. You don't have a choice in this matter. And so Mordecai points out that she may have come to the palace for such a time as this. He's basically saying to her, look, Esther, you need to understand. This may be the very reason why you were taken and you became queen is for this moment to save your people. Now, let me just stop for a moment. There's some, again, we're dealing with a narrative here, a historical record, but it's very much obvious that things just don't happen circumstance. What happens is, is that God is the one who's in control. And the reality is, is that she is there for this moment to do what she's supposed to do. So Esther then called for all the Jews to gather in order to fast for three days. So she decides, okay, all right, we're going to do this. So I want all the Jews within the city to gather and we're going to fast for three days. So she's calling them to a prayer meeting, so to speak. To fast and make requests for her. And she states that she will go to the king, which is unlawful. So she says, look, after these three days of fasting, I'm going to go. I'm going to go, because which is not lawful. I'm going to show up and go to the king even though it's not lawful. And then she basically comes to a conclusion, and she says, she also states that if she must perish, she perishes. So if I have to die, I die. But I did what I was supposed to do. That's, that's the reality here. That's the strength of Esther that you see here. She's going to do what she's supposed to do. Now, that brings us to the end of chapter 4. Now, next week, we're going to get into chapter 5 and the following few chapters after that, and we're going to see, really, the whole plot of what happens with Haman and what happens when Esther goes to the king and pleads for her people and the amazing outcome that happens. And we're going to see that next week.